Father, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunities that you create for us to serve you in, in even the smallest of ways. We surrender our service to you, and we pray that it honors and glorifies you. We, uh, we surrender this time of learning to you and pray that it also honors and glorifies you. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, guys, I'm Greg Seeger of, what does that mean? I'm really nobody. Of, but I've been doing short-term missions for a long time. And, and of, my wife and I founded this organization called the Christian Health Service Corps. And I'll tell you a little bit about how we got there uh, in a minute. But uh, I'm a registered nurse. My wife is as well. Uh, one of the things that we identified a long time ago was a need for a mission sending agency that was focused on healthcare professionals. Of, and so that's kind of where we landed and, and, and where God has grown us. We're at this point, I think, the only long-term sending agency that's focused on uh, healthcare professionals. And the reason that's relevant and why am I talking about short-term missions? Well, our roots are in short-term. And But a lot of what we're going to talk about today is what is the long-term perspective of short-term missions? In other words... What does missions look? What of our what do our short-term mission teams in in those kind of programs look like from the other side? Uh, so our goals today they're pretty simple. We want to define and we want to identify what what best practices and global health initiatives really looks like and global health ministry looks like. Of uh, you know we want to see you know do these practices support both patient safety and human dignity. And is, and, and is that realistic and attainable in short-term missions? And I believe it is. And we want to answer the question, what does holistic global health ministry look like? So these are some of the things that we're just going to kind of touch on as we, as we move forward. So our journey in, in missions and how we got to where we are right now, of the one putting the IV in the baby is my wife, of... Well over 10 years ago, we started doing short-term mission teams with our church in South Florida. But about our second trip, we decided we, we kind of looked at this and stood back and said, "You know, are we are we doing a great thing here? You know, our intentions were good, our our heart was right, and we really wanted. We had a group of docs and nurses that were going down, uh, you know, to serve in some poor communities in in Central America." And, and our intentions were all that we really wanted to serve people. But when we stood back and looked at it, we got to the point where we were doing about six to eight teams a year uh, at that point, and we stood back and looked at it and had to ask ourselves some hard questions. And we really began to question some of the stuff that we were doing. Uh, I, one of the trips I got back was probably about my third trip. I got back and I got an email from uh, a some uh, health workers, they were actually with Peace Corps. They were Christian, so they volunteered to work with our, our team, and, and they sent me an email that was was really disappointing, and it was kind of scary because they gave me some understandings that I hadn't had before. They said, uh, you know, they, they expressed their deep regret for actually having participated with us, and that, uh, you know, that the local health authorities felt that we kind of subverted their authority, and we weren't plugged in with them, and they went on and on. And 
they, they listed a whole bunch of stuff that I had never even anticipated or never even thought of before. And that gave us the understanding that, well, maybe, maybe we really need to look at this from the other side. Maybe we need to begin to study mission, short-term missions from the receiving end. And how does that really look? Uh, and how do, how do we present ourselves in, in these teams and in these communities? And, and that uh, gave rise to us continuing to work in, in ministry. Uh, in 2003, we met at that time was the director of health services for healthcare services for Mercy Ships. And we went to work with them for a couple of years. And our, our goal there was to try to fit the short-term volunteers in with some of the long-term community development programs. Uh, I was pretty naive in the, at that point, and I, when I went to the ship and said, okay, we want to bring healthcare teams to the ship to work alongside the community programs, and they kind of said, well, over our cold, dead bodies, will you bring healthcare teams to our ship? And uh, so that was a great learning experience in and of itself. Uh, so we had a, a lot to process, and we had a lot to learn at that point. We had already begun to uh, read a lot of stuff, uh, like, you know, uh, Walking with the Poor, great book. I, I recommend it highly. Things that help us get a better understanding of what development looks like. But some of the things that we learned in the process of all of this studying was, was really kind of trying to identify best practices. We, we really found that those practices are revolve around patient safety and health care delivery and promoting human dignity. And those are the two identifying factors. If you're looking at an organization and saying, what do their practices look like? Do they support those two things? In their short-term programs or in their long-term programs, do they support human dignity? Do they empower those they serve? And, and is the health care they're providing have some focus on patient safety in their health care delivery? Healthcare ministry best practices really revolves around seeing people as an integrated whole. We, we want to treat people as a spiritual, biosocial whole, not, and not we're going to meet people's spiritual needs and we're going to meet people's physical needs. We want to see people as who God created them, which is, which is a, a, a biosocial, spiritual whole, not, not, not all dichotomized. When we're talking about global health best practices, we're talking about four key areas. They are patient safety, facilitation of health development, healthcare system integration and collaboration, and community empowerment. These four areas interact on a lot of different levels. And I thank you. If anybody's here from Hesperian, these are from the Hesperian Library images, which are great for creating health education tools. Of when we talk about patient safety, uh, healthcare system integration and collaboration is really a key component of that, meaning that when we set up in a church or a school to provide healthcare services or any, any, any system that, that's not normally associated with healthcare. Did I do that? Okay, sorry. Of any system that's not associated with healthcare services. Is, is kind of a challenge. So we ideally want to work alongside local health care providers and local health systems. Of, but what does that look like, and how do we achieve that? I mean, those are questions that we need to continue to ask. Of, 
there's when we talk about community empowerment, and I'll deal with this a little bit more, those are more horizontal programs. They're community-driven, and we want to figure out models to plug into those but not and work alongside and promote what the community is doing. I, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, facilitation of health development. When we partner with local facilities and with mission health systems, what happens is uh, we can connect and we can, we can work to build up local skill levels. We can provide specialty services that aren't normally available. And, and their connection to us can sometimes, we, we can draw equipment and supplies and materials that, that help them provide health care services. People say, oh, well, we don't want to create dependency. Well, when, when, you, when you think of the idea of dependency in, in, in vertical health programs, which is what we're talking about, health programs that provide x-ray services, CAT scans, surgical services, those kind of things, those are not sustainable without outside help in developing communities. Of, and when we collaborate with local health care providers, we want to do so on patient safety. And, and as we do that, we can begin to, you know, that begins to raise, raise the quality of health care. And we'll talk more as we go through here. We put this book together just more as kind of a guide. Of, and the idea is we put six best practice guidelines, and they are exactly that, guidelines. And what we did was we tried to accumulate most of the WHO materials and then take the community development stuff and kind of plug those things together so that we can help short-term programs understand how all of that fits together and how it works. But basically, best practice guideline one we outlined is evidence-based patient safety-centered cultures. We want to create patient safety-centered focused healthcare delivery programs, whether we're doing it for two weeks or whether we're doing it for two years. The idea of patient safety has to be on our minds and has to be at the center of what we do. Of guideline two, evidence-based patient safety-oriented pre-field training. We want people to understand and our volunteers to understand that if you're going out for two weeks, you know, kind of what they need to keep in mind in the way of patient safety. Of guideline three, participatory stakeholder collaboration and integration. Now, I put stakeholder and not healthcare system is, and you'll understand why probably more in a minute when we get a little further into this, but the, uh, we have to know everything that's happening in that community if we're going to drop a healthcare team into a community. We want to know, not only, we want to know the healthcare providers, we want to know, are you taking food off a local doctor's table by providing health services in that community? Uh, what health services are available? What community development programs are working in the area? Is UNICEF there? Is uh, World Vision working in there? What programs are they doing? What child survival programs? What immunization programs? So that you're not stepping on these programs when, you, uh, when you're providing services. Complete and thorough documentation of care provided. This should go without saying, but I would, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, cite some studies in the book where it's kind of disappointing that we as a healthcare profession go and provide healthcare services and provide no documentation of our services of, in, in that to me is kind of scary. Uh, maintain an evidence-based patient safety-centered field operations, mainly kind of what are the WHO guidelines, our health system. You know, when we're providing healthcare delivery, we need to know what those guidelines are. Uh, you know, can point you to the direction of some of that, some of it I list in here. Uh, and then participatory design, monitoring, and evaluation. And that goes to something we'll talk about a little bit further in, but it, it it gets to the idea that 
short-term teams are, are not really the end goal. Fielding a team is not our goal. If you're, if you're doing short-term programs, the idea of, of doing a short-term program is a means, not an end. We want to use those teams to facilitate some other, some other goal, some other objective in, in the idea of best practices. And again, these are, these are ideal practices. Will we attempt to achieve them and fall short on some levels? Absolutely. But the idea is we keep them in mind so that we know kind of what we're shooting for in some of this. The Dynamedian model is the WHO model for healthcare quality, uh, uh, quality improvement and quality assurance. It uh, is really foundational to healthcare quality improvement. Uh, Vedas Dynamedian wrote probably the first real healthcare quality books back in the 1960s. And it still remains the, the primary framework for the WHO in, in their healthcare quality and patient safety programs. But it has three kind of key components, process, structure, patient-centered outcome assessments. You see where we might fall down in the short-term, short-term realm? It's really hard to achieve this, achieve any level of patient safety when we're doing healthcare from, from, from a, uh, a school or an outside center. Let me give you uh, the Maria story. Is uh, so I think it starts out the book in reality. And I'll give you a little synopsis of it. Uh, Maria is a young mom in, in Honduras who brings her four kids in to a medical brigade who's who's there providing healthcare services. Great effort by local by a church in, from South Florida and. There was probably 200 patients a day being seen, being turned over in here. Uh, Maria was seen by a physician. She got multiple prescriptions for each one of her four children, two of which were really sick. The other ones got, you know, uh, you know, anti-helminth medications and, and, and a number of vitamins. And so she waited in, in line at the pharmacy for, I don't know, probably an hour. And then she finally got called to the pharmacy to get her prescriptions filled. And... While Maria is trying to herd her four children and keep them from getting lost in the crowd of people, she's receiving uh, instructions from a paramedic through a translator on her medications for her children. Uh, long story short, Maria uh, gave the infant the dose of Tylenol for the six-year-old over the course of a week, and, and the baby lost its liver and, and, and was taken to the rural hospital there in the region after, a week after the team left. Uh, but these are the kind of things that we need to think about. And some of it is understanding that, uh, we'll talk about it in a minute, but the unintended consequences of purposive action. Anytime we intend something, even with the best of intentions, and we do it really well, there's going to be outcomes that we can't foresee. And best practices really revolves around how do we try to find and foresee all of those unintended consequences and, and do our best to mitigate them before they occur. Maria's story teaches a few different things about especially short-term medical teams. You know, non-medical and church volunteers are often used to fill prescriptions and then instructions are given through translators uh, by a nurse or paramedic. 
of the WHO standard on this is that private pharmacy consultation rooms need to be used in order to fully assure that mom or whoever is receiving those medication instructions understands what what they're being told to do with those medicines. Uh, so, you know, teams can handle that in a lot of different ways. They can do it in the exam room where sometimes I've seen in when we were doing this more often, I would, I would have the, the physician or the practitioner prov- give those instructions to the to the mom or to the family in the exam room, I would have a runner who would go get those medicines, bring them back for the physician as they were prescribed, and then they could do that, uh, they could do that patient education there. There's a, diff- there's a few different models. Sometimes the pharmacy will have a separate room for, for uh, counseling and education, but you want to just keep that in mind that it's hard for these, you know, we're working through translators. There's a lot of levels of complexity here. You want to be sure that mom understands. And uh, ideally, she wants, she needs to give that first dose. Uh, caregivers' children may receive several prescriptions, usually in Ziploc baggies, often receiving instructions in front of a crowd of people. Uh, those same caregivers then take those baggies of medications home to a one-room dirt floor house with no safe place to store them away from their children. Anybody see disaster written on that? Uh, Patients often hold cultural beliefs about medications that further cloud their understanding. I.e., big pills are for big people, little pills are for children, red pills are for blood, blue pills are for stomach. I've seen all of those. Uh, and those are challenging, and we, we have to understand those cultural norms and, and, and the cultural perceptions about medicines when we begin to work in a community. Uh, Dawn and Dawn's 2003 study, they, uh, the quality in, in short-term teams uh, in short-term health care projects in the Dominican, excuse me, uh, stated that 36% of the patients seen by a recent healthcare team had shared medicines with one or more people, some of whom were children. Uh, so we have to understand what the cultural norms are for those medicines when, before we dispense them. So medication safety is a big concern. Talk in the book about uh, Operation Smile in 1999 when they drew quite a bit of public scrutiny of for you know what was termed at that point shoddy practices. Four deaths of children in 1998, 12 in prior years, 29% of the 169 children whom Operation Smile operated on that year had complications requiring ongoing surgical procedures in Chinese hospitals from Ch- in China. Uh, in Kenya, a child died during surgery as a result of running out of oxygen. In Vietnam, a child lost, uh, was lost as a result of an asthma attack and surgery and medical history, not uncovered in pre-op evaluation. Also, there's a potential for poisoning here, uh, as we discussed with the Ziploc baggies, which is, seems to be the norm in, in, in medical missions nowadays. It's estimated that 125 children per day lose their lives as a result of poisonings, the vast majority of which are pharmaceutical-related. That's every day 125 kids die, uh, and the majority of those are, are pharmacy-related. And I just want to take some time on that for a minute because I get a lot of pushback on this idea of, of Ziploc baggies and, and their, you know, their use in, in short-term mission teams. One study in the Arab Emirates, uh, United Arab Emirates, found that 55% of child poisonings were medication-related, with analgesics and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and antihistamines being the most common causes in deaths of one- to five-year-old uh, children. Another group, another study in Turkey, 
Also showed accidental ingestions of medications as the most common cause of poisonings in children aged 1 to 5 at 57.7%. The same study also confirmed the most frequent medications were analgesics, non-steroidal. Of another study in Bangladesh, Cambodia, Egypt, Pakistan, so it was a multi-country evaluation, 31% of poisonings in children uh, were also pharmaceutical-related. Prior to 1970, Poison Protection uh, Packaging Act, child poisonings were largely considered the leading cause of death in children aged 1 to 5 in the United States, with pharmaceuticals as the leading cause of those poisons. So, end of the story, Ziploc baggies are never acceptable for dispensing pharmaceuticals. These little containers are very cheap. You can get them. Uh, you can buy them from any pharmaceutical supply. And what we would do is have mom save them. So the next team that comes through and hands them a bunch of medicines in Ziploc baggies when they don't have anywhere to store them in their, in their home, use the, use the child safe container. Explain to her how to use it and then safe storage up high, places where the kids can't reach them. Okay. Again, uh, this is the WHO standard, which I began to state a minute ago. Moms must verbalize the medication instructions and demonstrate measuring the first dose of medication and administer the first dose of medication under the supervision of a licensed provider, that being nurse or phys- and or physician or PA or even pharmacist. But there needs to be somebody there who, who really can assure mom knows what she's doing with these medicines. Attempt to limit the number of prescriptions for each family, and each child treated should have medication dosages labeled for each child's, with each child's name and age education before medication. So that's it on the pharmacy stuff. But when we talk about patient safety and global health, there's, uh, it's really hard to achieve that. And, and we need to think about and develop strategies. And, and each organization is different. The structure is different, whether it be a small church team or, or a large organization that does 50 teams a year. Everybody's different, but we need to be able to think through our patient safety programs. The greatest barrier to achieving uh, better levels of patient safety are really the infrastructure issue. Uh, when we we look at uh, where are we providing the health care, when you're providing it in the community, disassoci- you know, dissociated from any local providers, it's really going to be almost impossible to achieve the level of safety that you want. Uh, many short-term programs attempt to provide care and dispense medications in schools, community centers, churches, and all of these things are are things that we do on a regular basis. We just need to really think through because there is a health center close by. How are we connecting with them? And and those are things that you want to keep in mind. Surgical teams often operate in facilities that lack surgical infrastructure. I've seen this in Latin America so much, and and it's not necessary because there are functional hospitals that if you're a surgeon or, or an advanced healthcare provider, that you could be working in a mission hospital who desperately needs your services uh, instead of a a community clinic. There are some harmful assumptions that we really need to dispel in in short-term missions, medical missions. The first assumption is that potentially harmful, uh, you know, that's potentially harmful is any medication or any medical team or anything, uh, excuse me, anything a medical team can offer is beneficial. And this is sometimes called, you know, something's better than nothing. 
and we always go, we go with this. And, and the truth is, is oftentimes our short-term volunteers don't know what's available. They don't know that there is something there, and, and they don't know what that something is. And, and that's, that's a challenge, and we need to kind of break free from that because when the something that we're providing has the potential to harm, then maybe something isn't better than nothing. The second is, you know, the, in the limited time, we want to see as many patients as we possibly can. So we want to count numbers. We want to get as many patients through our, through our clinic as we can during the limited time that we're there. We need to reshift our focus in that area to quality of care, not quantity. And if we can think about that, we need to think about how do we, how do we provide better quality under the circumstances that we're providing that care. Okay. Arthur Kleiman and Paul Farmer uh, do a global health course at uh, Harvard every year, and they talk about the social construct of, of global health. And, and basically, they, they propose that biological problems in global health have their origins in the social realm. And we understand that also in, in Christian ministry, that, that diseases in global health are driven by human behavior in many instances. They're also driven by, by various attempts to, uh, to improve human, uh, human, the quality of human life in, in certain circumstances. Of, but from a, from a holistic ministry standpoint, when we – and I don't talk about this much in, in the book because the book is really focused on being able to provide the global health ideals in both Christian ministry and, uh, you know, and the secular world that, that sends out a huge number of teams as well. But we need to put spiritual at the center of what we do because we can't address just physical problems that, that, that are driven by social – uh, by social issues, and oftentimes sin is a huge component of that. And from, from our perspective as Christian providers, we want to keep that in mind, that, that we want to view people as a holistic, bio, biological and social, but also spiritual being. Robert Merton was a uh, sociologist I think out of Columbia, who was first to propose the idea of unintended consequences of purposive action. Now, the social, of, the social aspects of this are kind of clear when we think about how disease such as HIV is driven by social behavior and social norms and, and, and changes. But what's not so clear is that even when we do everything right, when we do everything to the best of our ability, when we are working with the community to facilitate community ownership, when they design the goals, when they design the project, and we just plug in and support them, and we do all these things that we term in the, in the global health world as best practices, you can still have unforeseen consequences. An example, there was a uh, dam project in Haiti that they did, oh, I don't know, probably five or six years ago. And it was funded by a church here in the United States, and it met all of these criteria. I mean, it was really well done. The, uh, they started a farm co-op. They got the pastors together. The pastors' association decided this is what we want to do. We need a dam so that we can irrigate these fields. To We want to we cultivate rice. And then each person, each, each one of the farmers, each one of the members is going to get percentage of land and they're going to have some to sell and some to keep for their family and had all of these dynamics, microenterprise. I mean, it was, it was a phenomenal program. 
So they, they put this program together. It was very successful. It did everything they wanted it to do. But now you have a valley that's flooded with freestanding water in the tropics. Now that one area has the highest prevalence of malaria in this hemisphere. So no matter our best intentions, sometimes we, we miss the mark. And, and, or we don't foresee some of those unintended consequences. So when I talk about best practices is kind of foresee what those unintended consequences are, we want to always think about, you know, what's going to happen with this project? Even if it, it is carried out in the, with, the best, with the best plan and the best, uh, all of the best practices, so to speak, what are, going to, what are those consequences going to be? And uh, most of the time, it's, it's a feedback loop of saying, okay, this didn't go so well. We need to learn something from this. And maybe we need to rethink this for next time. I'm trying not to move too much to create that noise. But there's a couple different types of, of health programs that we want to be familiar with if we're doing these short-term. There's vertical programs and there's horizontal programs. These vertical programs are really... Uh, Sorry, guys, I'm not sure the, uh, what the mic issue is. Uh, vertical programs are really effective, and, and they can be even their direct healthcare delivery, such as, you know, stuff that's going to require x-rays and those sorts of programs, and community health and public health programs, such as EPI, rollback malaria, uh, prevention of mother-to-child transmission of HIV. These are all vertical programs because they're derived from the outside the community. The community is not the ones who really fostered this program, but it was, it was driven by outside money and outside, uh, outside intent. Uh, the problem is that sometimes they'll undermine community ownership. And, you know, there's, there's some other issues with them, too. The outside planners and donors, you know, are really deciding what's best for the community, and that's not the ideal of, of best practice. And they're often not sustainable if the funding dries up or if, or if it's reallocated to other areas. Of, and they often find their success at the expense of pulling volunteer workers from some of the from some of the other community programs. Of the horizontal programs are really community driven, and we need to begin to understand a little bit about community uh, community type programs when we're doing short term projects. Because if you're not going to work in the hospital, if you're going to work at the community level. You want to be able to find out what's going on in that program, that community, and, and foster that, and really work with with the local uh, with local folks who are doing community programming there to see what you can do to serve and support them. And and that is kind of the thought that if I could if I could impart anything to the churches about missions, it's that it's that our purpose in short term missions is to serve and support long term ministries in their programs. It's not to serve our own agenda. It's not to do our own thing. It's to find out what God is already doing in that community and serve and support, serve and support them in, in that program. Of the ideal that we're reaching for, in, uh, if, if you have a chance, go to t one of Ted Lancaster's talks about this stuff. He's here, uh, and, and I cite him a lot in the book, and I cite him in this stuff too, because community-based healthcare was really kind of, you know, something that he was promoting for years and years. Of 
and the idea is that we we connect those two. We connect the dots. We take the 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 we connect the vertical health programs with the horizontal programs, and we create a synergy between them. And short-term teams are at a very unique position to be able to do that, where you can bring the, the health system and, and some of the community programs together or develop community programs that foster and work alongside the health program. But there are some things we need to consider. Of when we talk about empowerment or disempowerment. When I talk about community empowerment, we're also talking about local health providers and how are we working to empower them or disempower them. Of, I'll give you an example. After uh, that's that's the Catholic Cathedral in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, in uh, in January of 2010. By the way, of what what we need to think about is how our efforts are affecting local providers, and that's really important. Not only is it important for us to collaborate with them for patient safety and all these other issues, but we can really we can really do some harm there if we're not paying attention. About August of 2010, I was meeting with one of our facility partners down there in Dessaline, Haiti, and they were telling me how after all of the volunteer providers that came down, they were really struggling to make ends meet. And the reason being is there were so many volunteer teams coming and working in the area that they uh, were having a hard time. All their fee-for-service was out the window because all their patients were going into the communities to get free care. And uh, although it's wonderful that these people were getting free care, the downside to that is is that hospital depends on those revenues to pay the salaries of, of their staff. And this is one of the more functional hospitals in all of Haiti. I mean, they have a great operating room. They have, you know, I mean, they're, they're, the services there are, are really pretty top-notch in, in comparison. And uh, they, did, they did survive, but it was, you know, I mean, I could see it in, in their heart. In, in their, they'll tell you, no, we, don't, we want you to come. We, we want you to serve. We have nine, they have nine community clinics they would love to plug you into, uh, and they could use your help. But they don't want people just coming in and doing their own thing and kind of subverting their authority and, and then taking business away from them too because they, they really need that to continue to sustainability of, of a higher level of service in that area. One of the things that we need to keep in mind is that short-term global health programs will either build confidence in the local health workers or they will diminish it. Which outcome occurs is often determined by the amount or of direction and ownership that the local health system has over the global health project. Make sense? Let me say it again. Short-term global health programs will either build confidence in the local health system or you will diminish it. Which outcome occurs depends on how much ownership you give the community. I'll give you an example. A general medical team was requested by a missionary in Guatemala. The missionary's home church in Vancouver had several doctors, nurses, and non-medical volunteers that went in response to the request. The team was directed by the missionary to three communities where they held clinics in local churches. They saw 200 patients per day for seven days. In, you know, in a rural area they believed had very limited access to health care. However, on the second day, Dr. Hernandez, primary health care provider for the area, arrived to extend his welcome to the team. 
His clinic was two blocks away. Later, a translator stated that Dr. Hernandez, his cousin, happened to be his cousin, may have to close his clinic because he was having difficulty making ends meet. Apparently, volunteer medical teams were coming into the area every two to three months. Each time they did, his business dropped off significantly for the weeks to follow. In addition, his office closed during the time the team was there. Uh, No one wants to go to a local doctor. Everybody knows the gringo doctors are so much better. At church on Sunday, you run into Dr. Hernandez and learn that he's board certified in internal medicine in the U.S., and had done a fellowship in public health with Pan American Health Source Associ- er, Organization in Washington, D.C. True story, by the way. Of, and we need to be cognizant of, of who's providing care, how they're providing care, and how we can work alongside and serve and support them. You know, it's their community. And the truth is, is that they know way more about providing health care and resource-poor communities than we'll ever know on a short-term basis. I mean, if you want to go like these guys and live in, you know, rural Ghana for 20 years, uh, they're going to have a pretty good idea how to treat pathology in that area. But if you're going for two to four weeks, even if you go two weeks for every year for the next 12 years, you're still really not going to have a good grasp of practicing in resource-poor environments, at least not as good as they do. So plug into them as a resource. Learn from them. Edify them. And, and, and you'll find that... Uh, you know, a great synergy can can happen within that context. Kunde Hospitals uh, in the Mount Everest region of Nepal, uh, Bishop and Lynch's article there was uh, in the British Medical Journal back in 2000. It's kind of old, but they they report kind of how all these uh, docs were coming into the area as as tourists and setting up ad hoc clinics to provide, uh, you know, health care and give out medicines without any connection to them. And nobody ever contacted them. Nobody ever, they've been running a hospital there with a huge public health program. Here's the problem. Public health program was overseeing one of the largest TB programs in the country in one of the highest TB tuberculosis, uh, you know, tuberculosis concentrations in the world. So we now have volunteer teams coming in, handing out medicines and confusing people and thinking, Treating them for a cough, oh, don't take that medicine, take this medicine. Huge problem. Relief versus development. Something that, uh, something that we all have to keep in mind. And we have to know the difference here. Relief is meant to provide charity in emergency crisis situations where development is about improving self-sufficiency and capacity giving handouts of goods and services, even medical services, in situations that call for development can do enormous damage to the development efforts. They do this by undermining capacity and willingness uh, in the willingness of resource-poor communities to steward their own resources. Uh, if you get a chance to see, Brian Fickert is here, uh, who wrote when, Hel- when Helping Hurts. Uh, I strongly recommend you, you attend his workshop. If you're doing short-term missions, this is vital information, and he's, he does some great he has some great information. Concept of paternalism. This is something that we all need to be familiar with in mission work. Uh, paternalism is defined as an attitude of a person that subordinates another as if they should be controlled in a fatherly way for their own good. See, sadly, the attitude of many short-term medical volunteers is that their training, skills, knowledge, and ability are superior to that of local providers. 
this attitude immediately subordinates local providers. And, and in reality, it's usually not the case. So pray about how, when you are working beside local providers, how are you perceived? Because you need to pre- be perceived more as a learner than an educator. And then, as time goes by, you can, you can shift that role and you can learn from each other. But you have so much to learn from that culture and that environment and practicing in the environment that uh, it, it's hard to walk in. And, and, and we just got to be, we got to keep our attitudes in check all the time. See, no one clearly understands the effect uh, on the spirit of a person on the se- or self-worth of a person who, rece- who is forced to receive charity. But what we do know is that helping people is about encouragement, edification, facilitating the achievement of self-sufficiency. If not well thought out, our efforts can make people feel incapable of meeting their own needs or indebted to our benevolence. And in ministry, the only, the, the only dependence we want to create is on God. And, and we, have to th- we have to think that through. You know, I put a little scripture down there. It's a man's spirit sustains him in sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear and sometimes I think in, in our anxiousness to help people, we go and provide services of, and, and, and it makes people feel, you know, Brian Figger talks a lot about how, you know, the WHO did a, a big study that, of, you know, how people perceive poverty. And, and most people perceive it in very psychological terms. I'm embarrassed. I... Of, you know, I'm ashamed. And, and when we go in and, and do things for them that they feel they can't do for themselves, that can be very disempowering. Put another way, when we, uh, when we think about a list of needs, when we, when we think about that constantly, you know, you know, we're going to a community, we think, what's the needs list? How do we create a needs list? Well, no, we're thinking about that wrong. Because... When I, if I make a list of all the things in your life that you, know, you need versus all the assets that you have and that God has given you, what is the difference? One becomes very empowering. One becomes very disempowering. And we need to be able, begin to see past the disability, past the poverty, to see what God has given them and, and how uh, you know, God can create amazing things in that community. Of, but we have to be able to see past the poverty. Health education. This is a vital aspect of, of short-term programs, and I think is going to become much bigger as we, you know, uh, as we go along the lines of this. But what it looks like is very important. It shouldn't look like this room where one person standing out and telling you, of, you, you know, this is the way it is. It needs to be very, uh, very participatory. It also needs to be ideally facilitated by local folks. And that is kind of the CHE model. So if you're not familiar with CHE or community health evangelism, you probably should be if you're doing short-term teams so that you can kind of grasp what that CHE, what CHE looks like. Because CHE trains trainers. It doesn't train the whole community. And, And the reason that's important is because you can gain some understanding of what it's like for a young mom to have to get up in the morning, uh, take care of her children, wash the clothes in the local river, wash the children in the local river, make food from scratch, sometimes make charcoal, 
and, and their life is incredibly difficult. We used to make, when we would train community health educators, we would make them spend two or three days at least in a community walking behind mom and helping her walk through her daily life. Why? Because it's very hard to speak into somebody's life unless you've walked in their shoes just a little bit, just a little bit. And, and it's really hard. Uh, and I can't tell somebody to boil water unless I know how hard her life already is. I can't tell her to, to do certain things that make her life even harder unless I really understand where she's at and can help her develop strategies to, to work through those things. Does that make sense? Okay. Combining CHE, Community Health Evangelism, and short-term initiatives. I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done on this idea. Of, but I'll give you an example, one example, of, from one of these talks probably five years ago. Of, of A doc took, was taking a, a team of physicians every year going to Ghana. And they would go and provide curative health care in the community. And after coming to one of these talks, they said, maybe we'll try this a little differently. We'll go and ask the community how we could maybe help and fit into what they're doing. And the community was pretty clear. They said, you know, we have a horrible malaria problem. And this is the, the, our focus. This is what we really want to focus on is this malaria problem. Can you help us create a malaria education program and get bed nets? So the next year, the physicians came home, and they worked throughout the year to develop, you know, help them get teaching materials and bed nets and all the things they need to do malaria medication, uh, all the things they really need to do an efficient malaria program, uh, the artisanal suppositories and some of the things that are, are really key components of that program. They began to study it from the community level. And when they went back, they were able to really serve and support that community and what they wanted, not what we wanted. And that, I think, is, is something that we all need to get. How do we work alongside with the community and say, okay, what are you doing and is there a way we can plug into it instead of here we are, you know, the, the band of North Americans with our Save the Day t-shirts and we're going to fix all your problems. we got to rethink that. You know, that is very disempowering and it's very frustrating for people on the other side. Uh, how do we do collaborating with health systems for, to facilitate health development? What does that look like? There's a couple of really good programs that I've seen out there. Uh, CAMO, uh, Central American Medical Outreach, sorry, uh, is one of them. It was, uh, they're in Central America. Really good program because it was, it was started by a nurse who used to be a Peace Corps volunteer. And her thought process, she would get doctors who would volunteer. They want to come down. And she would say, okay, what is your specialty? And they say, okay, it's urology. Okay, well, we'd love to have you, but you need to come back every year for two weeks for the next five years. And you're going to be paired with a local physician, and, and you're going to teach them about your specialty. And then when they have cases that they're not sure about, they're going to contact you on Skype and you guys can talk and they'll show, send you slides and you guys email, communicate back and forth together. Now every time that physician came, he brought more of, you know, uh, different resources for the hospital. 
Now that one area in Central America. I'm sorry, guys. I don't know what to do about that. Uh, that one area in Central America now has the best, probably some of the best health care in the region uh, because they've been doing that for years, and they've been doing it with multiple, multiple specialties. They have full GI clinics. They have GYN clinics. They have, you know, they have ultrasound, ult, ultrasounds. They have a, uh, a DME, a, a durable medical equipment unit that has biomedical engineers that are local that train, that go around and fix different equipment of, in, in different facilities. A phenomenal program, but it was well thought out, and it was thought out in a way that's saying, okay, if you want to volunteer, what are you really going to input here? Is it all about you, or is it about the, where you're going to serve? And if it's about where you're going to serve, there's ways that you can do that strategically that are really phenomenal. Okay. Of... How do we create an evidence-based patient safety center culture? I'm going to give you some of the subsets of, of some of this. Of patient safety and healthcare quality improvement should really be an integral part of our short-term healthcare programs. And, and they need to be part of our core documents and our program, you know, in our training materials. If we're if we're doing short-term teams on a regular basis, they need to be incorporated into who we are as an organization. Patient safety and healthcare quality improvement protocols should be featured and listed in our program's website. If we're doing, if we're, if we're saying that we're doing this and we're going to be healthcare, if we're going to be doing healthcare delivery, then we need to we need to meet some basic standards in this area. The organizational board meetings and, uh, or project planning meetings, if that would be a church or a smaller program, really need to reflect equal allotment of time for financial issues and patient safety issues. In other words, this needs to be brought out, it needs to be discussed, and how are you going to plan and strategize? Organizations that engage in short-term global health projects should also uh, have a designated patient safety officers. Most of the time that's a volunteer nurse or somebody who can kind of pick up that torch and say and kind of monitor the safety issues involved. And if you're doing a lot of these teams or even if you're doing two, one a year, one person should take responsibility to kind of keep control of the patient safety aspect of it. Of pre-field pharmacovigilance, this goes into the, some of the other fields, you know, the, the pre-field training. Uh, the pharmacovigilance aspect of it, stuff that I went over with you guys is vital. I think that every short-term volunteer needs to see that. Of the rest of the stuff you can, you can if you want to get the book, look through the book. Uh, I think you'll find some, some good information in there. Of, but I do want to... Of, I want to get to this one real quick of guideline six, participatory design monitoring and evaluation, because this kind of breaks from the mold of, of, of some of what we've done in the past in the way of short-term missions, because this gets to the idea that that teams really, these teams are a, uh, they, they are a means, not an end. But what does this look like? It's going to look different in every, every program. But those physicians that, that went to Ghana and sat down and said, okay, what can we do to support your efforts is the start of this. And, and this project, you know, this project cycle can then take place. Where does it go from there? It means that, it, you know, sometimes, an example we used 
a short-term team, to, multiple short-term teams in a row to go back and, uh, and plug in and, and do monitoring and evaluation for a community health program. One of the things you can do with short-term teams is uh, you can weigh, measure, and graph 1,000 kids in a week. Okay? You, can, you can get all that data. I can, I can tell you malnutrition prevalence, disease prevalence in that community based on just assessing the kids most of the time. And, and that gives you some really good, hard data to work with local health programs to, uh, to try to implement projects where you can really make lasting improvement in these. One of the challenges we had at Mercy Ships was that, uh, you know, none of the programs got funded very well, of, you know, as far as the community health stuff. So when we started add, trying to add this monitoring and, and evaluation component to it, all of a sudden these could raise the eyebrows of funding agencies. So this is another thing that short-term teams can look at and say, how can we partner with local, you know, with local programs to say, okay, can we, you know, we can look at all these programs, we can get malnutrition prevalence in all these kids. How can we, uh, you know, how can we instill some, uh, you know, some basic nutrition program, for example, vitamin A supplementation programs. All of these, all of these are vital aspects of community health. And, and your ability to monitor and evaluate and just and get disease prevalence and do a really good clinical assessment in a community is, is, is invaluable. I don't know if this is going to get any better, but I'm going to try this. And I don't know if it will make it worse or better, but... Uh, Sounds like it might be worse, but can you guys still hear me? Okay. Uh, in medical missions, who knows where this medical symbol came from? You know, the, the pole and the, and the, and the serpents? You know, there's, there's a lot of talk about that being from, the, uh, you know, from, from Greek mythology. But if you look at it, it numbers 21, 8, and 9, it talks about how uh, where Moses went uh, when he went to the Lord and uh, the people were repentant for, you know, for the fiery serpents that came into the camp and they were, they were repentant for their attitudes towards the Lord. And, and uh, Moses was told to do what? Put the snake on the pole and that who looked upon the snake would be healed or they at least wouldn't die. And... Of when we look at John 3:14, what does that say? Anybody know off the top of their head? Anybody have John 3 memorized? As as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. See, we're obviously all this stuff. None of us are going to have all the answers here, and ultimately, our job is to point to the Lord. Uh, he he heals. We we treat, and, and and we can. Our best laid plans are really. Fortunately, he's he's faithful to redeem them when they're turned out to be a real mess. <laughs> of, but remember, that's kind of what it's all about. Is whether it's short term or long term missions, we're really pointing to the Lord, saying, "Here we're here because He sent us, and we want to do the best we can." To serve and support what you are doing in your community, not what you know, and not have our own agendas. But um, I think that's it, and uh, I think we may be out of time for questions. But uh, if you have any.
of I'm I'm open. And I'll be here for a few minutes after. Okay. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming.